Hello, this is the 38th episode of the podcast titled Revolution Z. My name is Michael Albert and I'm the host. And this is the sixth session trying to convey the dialogue and visuals of the screenplay Next American Revolution. As five sessions have gone before, imagine you are sitting in a theater watching the big screen almost midway through the film. You see Miguel Guevara as he interviews Governor Celia Curie in her office in California. You see Hollywood memorabilia visible on the walls and shelves. Miguel Guevara asks, Governor Curie, can you tell us how you first became radical? Celia Curie replies, My father's brother raped me when I was 15. I didn't tell anyone. I was afraid and thought it was my fault. The fallout of me speaking up would have been horrendous for my dad and for my uncle's family. Afterward, I did research on the Internet, alone, to learn more about rape. I became indebted to many feminist writers who opened my door to radicalism. I realized that horrors like being raped, watching a loved one killed, having a parent jailed or ravaged by unemployment, alcohol, or drugs, dominates many people's early memories. I realized such harms can cripple, but also educate and inspire. Miguel Guevara asks, just 10 years later, RPS was percolating and Hollywood RPS got going. Do you remember how it started? Celia Curie replies, The first Hollywood chapter got going when some actors met to discuss how they might relate to RPS. It was shortly after the first convention and we took a few meetings to settle on joining. The scene shifts to an actor's opulent living room. We see young Celia Curie, 27, a Hollywood actress, meet with a group of actors in an enormous, ornate living room. One wall is all windows, overlooking a massive deck with a huge pool. Beyond that floats the Pacific. Fancy artwork adorns all walls. Young Celia Curie says, We should reach out to the other people in our artistic communities to join RPS. We should agitate to make our industry better reflect worthy values and aims. We should reach out to the broader population using film and our visibility as actors. We can do what Me Too did, but more broadly. The scene shifts to inside the governor's office, where the interview continues. Celia Curie says, Hollywood RPS started with 11 people. Seven were women who had been active in Me Too. Joining RPS was a little like deciding to relate to a film. We read a text, we assessed participants, we evaluated aims, we joined. We began reaching out to others in Hollywood to join RPS. The scene shifts to a public park where young Celia Curie walks and talks with an actor friend and a happy child crosses their path while a sad drunk slumps on a bench. The actor says, Why should I address what I would rather ignore? It would cost time to relate to RPS. It would alienate producers. And what would I do other than talk? Young Celia Curie replies, We are talking and talking matters, but I understand that we need activities beyond talking to relate to. So help us propose some. The scene shifts back to the governor's office, where the interview continues. Celia Curie, answering Miguel Guevara, says, Like everyone, the roles I occupied in society largely determined who I was by the requirements they imposed on me. However, after joining RPS, though Hollywood's daily pressures, contracts, media machinations, and expectations still pushed and pulled me, RPS became who I was at a more basic level than the rest. Guevara asks, didn't obstacles intimidate you? I remember fearing for my career as a journalist when I started supporting RPS, and at the same time doubting our potential, wondering if I was risking all for nothing. Curie replies, I don't know how to explain our reaction to obstacles other than to say it wasn't a time to hesitate. 
We had to agitate to make the change we wanted. We feared high water everywhere. But I suspect the earlier rise of feminist and anti-racist demands among actors and their successes spurred our can-do mindset. Guevara asks, So what emerged? Curie replies, First we assembled courses about current society, better society, and possibilities of the film industry. As actors, we were used to studying a lot before performing, so this step came easily. Second, we uncovered and publicized the pay rates of everyone in Hollywood, and then agitated for more equitable relations. You can imagine how hard doing that was and how it went over. But with informed persistence, we went from our appearing crazy to those defending old ways appearing greedy. Third, we pressured local media producers to give space and tools to grassroots participants, and we created short films and later some full-length ones promoting RPS ideas and programs. This was in our wheelhouse. Guevara asks, Do you remember the meeting where you first got together? Curie replies, I remember we met at a famous actor's house. The setting was a bit intimidating. The scene shifts to the actor's opulent living room where you see 11 actors meet. Host actor, We should do as we have done. Publicly favor candidates. Hold funding events for candidates. Give the candidates money. Help them win. For us to do less is not enough. Young Celia Curie reacts, Seriously? You know current conditions require more than band-aids. Just donating won't end global warming, poverty, and war. Society needs a rewrite. The scene shifts back to the governor's office where the interview continues. Miguel Guevara asks Celia Curie, What opposition did you face? Curie answers, The biggest obstacle was actually artist's incredible elitism. The scene shifts to a movie set where you see young Celia Curie talk with a belligerent actor while walking past a setting for a military scene. The belligerent actor says, We are unlike other workers. We should enjoy incomes commensurate to our talent. Having to do any shit work like you favor with your nonsense about balancing and empowering work would sap our focus. We are special. Young Celia Curie replies, Artists are creative, of course, but so are scientists, doctors, designers, and builders. And with training and new jobs, everyone could be creative for part of their work. Saying actors, directors, or other art workers shouldn't do a fair share of rote work implies others who do creative tasks also shouldn't. It says 20% of all those who work should do only the empowering work, and 80% should do only disempowering work. Belligerent actor replies, Yes, and why not? Doing rote work would cut into our creativity. Why lose creativity for some kind of needless correctness? Young Celia Curie answers, Yes, doing a fair mix of empowering and rote tasks will reduce current actor's time for acting. But everyone doing balanced work will utilize the potential of vast new constituencies. Belligerent actor responds, But even if that was true, it's insane to think the public should plan art. We plan it. The public likes it or not. We know what's creative, what we can do, how we can do it. Negotiating art as part of an economic plan, the RPS way, would mean I do what others decide. That would end art. Young Curie replies, You now do what executive producers decide. But in any case, workers and consumers self-managing doesn't mean the public decides what goes in a novel, play, or film any more than it means the public decides what research a scientist does or how an architect designs a building. The public decides what benefits society. Belligerent actor asks, what if they don't want what we do? No more films? Young Curie answers, if the public wants no films, creating films wouldn't count as socially valued work. 
If the public wants few films, the number of actors would be accordingly low. The same applies to music, novels, engineering, and medicine. But the public doesn't have to appreciate every film, painting, song, performance, construction method, or research project to know that it wants society to have art, engineering, and science. The public, with each person doing a fair share of empowering tasks and enjoying good education, would together settle on how much they want. That would determine the amount of art that workers can produce for income. Art workers would then decide what to create and how. Belligerent actor says, But not everyone is equally creative, writes equally, can equally convey emotions and passion on screen, or in text, or music, or a painting. Not everyone is equally smart, fast, or strong, either. We are born different. Young Curie responds, Yes, and to claim we have no inborn differences would be absurd, but education and training also matter. Belligerent actor answers, Of course education and training matter, but even if you had way more of each, you wouldn't be the actor I am. Young Curie answers, Perhaps, and we should certainly benefit from and celebrate the great talents that some have. Belligerent actor interrupts, If you celebrate differences, why in his vision does RPS try to level us by having everyone do a fair share of rote tasks? Young Curie answers, Virtually all human qualities come in different ranges, but that doesn't mean only a relative few people should do engaging, uplifting, empowering tasks. I celebrate inborn differences, but I also reject showering those born with faster reflexes, better sight, quicker calculation, stronger muscles, a painter's eye, or a surgeon's hand with wealth and power. Belligerent actor answers, but we contribute more. People love our product. It brightens lives. It enriches souls. We should earn more. Young Curie responds, first, current differences in income don't mainly reflect different talent, but past power and luck. More, providing rewards for excelling is neither necessary nor just. Celebrate excellence, sure, but also advance material equity and social solidarity. Admire genius, but also foster participation. The scene shifts back to the governor's office, where the interview continues. Miguel Guevara asks Celia Curie, I want to get into the details of RPS aims soon, but even now, can you tell us how RPS success would alter future artistry? Celia Curie replies, The audience for artistic work will grow due to people having more time for enjoyment, appreciation, and inspiration. But artistic workers, like all others, will receive equitable incomes and enjoy a fair mix of tasks in industries that relate to the will of both workers and consumers. Society will celebrate great artists, but it will not excessively enrich them. Guevara asks, Will creativity decline? Curie answers, I would guess we will have fewer special effects, less emphasis on the psyches and mayhem of murderers, and more creativity. However, high levels of excellent art will not be our only criteria of judgment. Miguel, no doubt you have encountered similar issues in journalism. Guevara answers, almost identical. The scene shifts to a classroom where you see young Mark Feynman, 29, in jeans, teaching actors at Actors RPS School. RPS flag hangs above. Young Mark Feynman says to the class, Consider a non-artistic situation. Suppose you produce shirts. Should you only maximize the quality and quantity of shirts that come out your door? Young actor replies, Sure, of course. Young Feynman adds, So to increase quality and quantity, you would work people to death, dump them in the alley, 
and call-in replacements. You would produce more shirts than people want. You would produce only exotic fancy shirts. You would produce more shirts, workers be damned, environment be damned, consumers be damned. Young actor responds, okay, no. I would take into account those working, the environment, those receiving product, and those not receiving other products that could have been produced instead. I get that. Young Feynman continues, and that's exactly why RPS's cooperative planning recognizes that it's fine to sometimes seek less output or settle for just good output if seeking more or better would increase waste, impose too much hardship on those involved, require too many resources, or generate too much pollution. Still, people in industries where it makes sense will provide more, and the public will benefit more because the whole population will have its creative potentials nurtured. And what's true for shirt-making is equally true for films. Young actor persists. I still worry that the lost contribution from highly talented folks doing some rote tasks won't be offset by previously rote workers doing some creative tasks. Rote workers lack the needed talent. Young Feynman answers. We can't all do everything, nor will we all be geniuses at any particular thing. But 80% aren't born to be menial. Not being best doesn't imply you can't contribute at all. If 100 children all enjoy the same conditions and your child comes in 21st, 45th, or even 100th in a race, does that mean your child can't run at all, much less can't jump or draw? Young actor asks, how can you be so sure those now doing only rote work could do empowering work successfully? It sounds like wishful thinking. You want it, you assert it. You're deluding yourself. Young Feynman answers, Whatever our inborn differences, the overriding fact is that society represses 80% of the population into seeming ill-equipped for empowering involvement. We don't genetically lack sufficient creativity to participate. Society's pliers crush it out of us. Young actor continues, Saying that is so doesn't make it so. I want to fly, but I don't say I can. I would like to be a composer, but wanting that doesn't cause it. Young Feynman answers, it wasn't long ago that men claimed women couldn't doctor, lawyer, engineer, or discover. Their argument was, look around. See, women don't do those things, and it is because they can't. Same for whites evaluating blacks. Blacks don't, therefore they can't. But it was nonsense. Women and blacks didn't because they were reviled, excluded, denigrated, denied, crushed, and even killed. Women were about half the population and blacks roughly a tenth. Now you denigrate about 80%. A worker in a factory isn't Einstein because she can't be, just like you and I can't be. But that same worker doesn't do any engaging, empowering tasks, not because she can't, but because she has been excluded while others hoarded benefits she was denied. The scene shifts back to the governor's office, where the interview continues. Miguel Guevara asks Celia Curie, When you attended your first Hollywood meeting, you weren't yet revolutionary. What brought you the rest of the way? Celia Curie answers, the literature I was reading taught me a lot, but we all tend to become what we do, so when our group got revolutionary, I did too. But I think the main thing was that folks in RPS learned to disagree without taking for granted that they were right. Our emphasis became learning something new, not defending what we previously said. Instead of taking pleasure in calling someone wrong and dismissing her by angry assertion, RPS folks learned to want to find what was right, even when it meant we were wrong, we had to learn. We based our image of ourselves on our readiness to change, not on staying unchanged. Conversations happened. Accommodations occurred. Truth trumped one-upsmanship. 
That, for me, was being revolutionary. Guevara asks, When did you begin to feel that the struggle was assured of victory? Curie answers, When we made our first RPS movie. It was way more radical than most films. It was not a technical extravaganza, not a thriller, not a mystery, not an exploration of murder and mayhem. It was not a celebration of psychosis, not a requited or unrequited love story, not a cartoon, not a comedy. It wasn't horror, dystopian, or utopian. It wasn't about aliens coming to us or our visiting them. It wasn't a coming of age or a becoming senile story. It had no overgrown animals, superheroes, or pathological villains. No trial, no crime. No one dying, no one being saved. It wasn't a remake, a sequel, or a prequel. It fit no template. It had no big star overcoming personal trauma and deadly danger. It featured a task to win a new society. It had obstacles to overcome, systemic power and prejudiced habits from the past. But it was idea-driven. The process was protagonist. The star was future history. Imagine giving an Oscar to future history. Yet, first two, then more Hollywood A-listers took a risky step away from established conventions to sign on and make it happen. And this told me the film industry was broadening out. We offered social substance and out-of-the-box structure, and Hollywood signed on and gave the screenplay's participants distinctive voices and personalities that the initial screenplay lacked. After our movie, the subsequent Hollywood marches sealed my confidence of winning. You see on screen a montage. You see actors march in L.A. You see directors attend neighborhood meetings in L.A. You see stunt people march in New York City. You see actors march in Boston. You see music people march in Cleveland. And while seeing all that, you hear Celia Curie's voice over the visuals. She says, Writers, actors, directors, editors, videographers, designers, drivers, dressers, stunt people, and music people march through Hollywood, chanting and singing, going on to neighborhood meetings for conversations at community gatherings. Then we did it in New York, Chicago, Boston, and Denver. The scene shifts back to the governor's office where the interview continues. Miguel Guerrero asks, I hope it's okay if I ask you a personal question about acting. You have been considered beautiful all your life. What place do you think beauty had in Hollywood's past, and what place should it have in Hollywood's future? Celia Curie replies, Growing up, I was considered beautiful. None of us can easily see that in ourselves, but we can see it in others. Sometimes a person's beauty can mesmerize and even addict. But in a horribly sexist society, there is even more to it. Miguel Guevara asks, what does beauty do to a person? Curie answers, Very young, I noticed how smiling and being flirty got me things I wanted. The behaviors became part of who I was. I got confidence, but my personality warped, and I got mired in feelings of entitlement, and I suffered guilt. Guevara asks, and later? Curie answers, There was harassment and violation, and Hollywood exaggerated such dynamics. Beauty has been bankable for women and for men, too. And what has been bankable has been cultivated and sought, but also discarded when it fades. Beautiful women and men were hired, and if you could perform reasonably well and didn't alienate producers, you could have a career, at least until your looks faded. Rivera asks, so how do you judge it? Curie answers, I was eyeballed, hit on, and sexually fantasized in many people's daily lives. Producers fostered it. Even aside from being harassed, think about knowing that thousands and maybe even millions imagine doing things with or to you. You know everyone undervalues everything else you are. Getting beyond that requires help, but who can you trust? We should eliminate beauty-based objectification, but also beauty-based reward. 
Suppose someone is born stupendously strong, fantastically fast, ridiculously reflexed, or brilliantly brainy. RPS says she should not be able to turn her genetic luck into wealth, power, or unfair advantages. But we still admire great reflexes and fast, clear thinking. And we know that having those attributes mean we can do some things which, without them, we could not do. So though it makes me nervous, shouldn't that also apply to appearance? In existing societies, special traits, features, qualities, or talents all convey both benefits and debits. The sex overlay gives appearance an added dimension, but any special quality conveys advantages, pressures, options, rewards, and costs. So I think in a new society, being lucky in the genetic lottery should not convey material advantage, greater say in society, or freedom from responsibility, nor should it impose denials or abuse. And with that said, I add, I think we're at a good place to break off. But I hope you will be back for our next American Revolution session. And I hope you will consider visiting our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash RevolutionZ, where you can support our ongoing work. And so finally, this is Michael Albert, signing off for Revolution Z. Until next time. <laughs>